The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hi everyone, um, thank you so much um, very, for attending and you're very welcome to um, the second of our four events from the ne newly formed Neurohumanities Networking Group um, founded by myself. I'm Amelia McConville um, and my friend and colleague Fiona Stout um, has also uh, been involved in the founding of, the, of this group. So uh, we're delighted to share today um, a talk by Professor Manny Ramaswamy um, of TCIN who's going to speak to us a bit about neurohumanities. Um, but first of all, just a few thank yous. So we want to thank um, the Neurohumanities Networking Group was founded by myself and Fiona. So I'm a PhD student uh, based in the School of English, but working with the Institute of Neuroscience and working on a, a doctoral project involving visual poetry and neurohumanities. Um, we are very grateful to the Long Room Hub for hosting our series over the summer um, and also very grateful to the Postgraduate uh, Wellbeing and Community Fund, which uh, helped fund our series um, here. So. Um, Basically, yeah, we, yeah, so I'll pass over to Fiona to introduce yourself now. Yeah, um, so I'm Fiona. Um, currently, I'm doing a two-year MLIT, hoping to transfer to a PhD register, studying fascia and fluidity in the actor body. So I'm under the umbrella of the theatre department. I'm really, really interested in neuroscience and interdisciplinary work. Um, and for our next two events, so we've got this lecture by Manny um, that's also quite interactive. And then for next Thursday, 12.30 to 2, I'm going to be hosting a functional fascia workshop. Um, so a little bit of prop action, a little bit of lecture, and a little bit of interactive, again, um, just to make sure that everyone's really engaged. And then the following week, we're going to be doing an interdisciplinary panel, three panelists uh, moderated by Amelia here. So. Thanks, Fiona. Yes, so um, I'm delighted to introduce, uh, oh, first of all, I should say as well that we had a wonderful event last week, um, our first networking event, and thanks to everybody who attended. It was a really wonderful um, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary postgraduate conversation about neurohumanities research in Trinity. Um, so we thought it was only right and proper to, to yield to one of the experts um, in Trinity at the moment. Um, and I'm going to introduce Manny now. So um, he probably needs no introduction, but I will nevertheless briefly um, give a summary of, of uh, Manny's work. So Professor Ramaswamy is a professor of neurogenetics at Trinity College. Dublin. Um, his laboratory was among the first to combine cell biology and genetics to analyze synaptic mechanisms in Drosophila. His current work is focused on neuronal functions of RNA granules and RNA binding pro proteins in vivo and neural circuit mechanisms involved in behavioral habituation. So Manny, thank you so much for joining us um, and the floor is all yours. Thanks Amelia, thanks uh, and uh, thanks Fiona. So um, as, as you learned from Amelia's uh, description of my work, um, I'm I mean, I'm, I'm, my work is really, my, my, my real, what I'm paid to do is not neurohumanities. I'm a geneticist and a cell biologist and a neuroscientist. So uh, I'm also the director of our Institute for Neuroscience. And uh, the, the Wellcome Trust, which somebody, what I thought I'd do today is give you sort of a, a history of how neurohumanities work has been sort of defined in Trinity over the last few years how it came into being and uh, what we've sort of done so far. And I'm going to try and convince you that there's a, as I, I tell you why I'm convinced that this is really an important and uh, interesting area that we should be working on, but it's a very interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary field. 
and then discuss some ideas, just give you some examples of some ideas, and then what, what the, the problems are in making these ideas, pushing these ideas forward to making them reality, and in general, what the problems and uh, potential solutions are for driving interdisciplinary work. So it's not going to be a lecture on the neurohumanities so much as sort of a perspective on neurohumanities and trinity and uh, you know, some ideas on the challenges, opportunities, and uh, solutions to driving interdisciplinarity in this area. Okay, so what happened uh, about five years ago was that the Wellcome Trust, which, uh, which funds uh, research in the general area of human health, um, and funds research grants mainly for many years, uh, decided that it would invite Trinity to apply for an institutional strategic support fund award. So the institute, so the so Trinity had to define some area that was of strategic importance to to the to, to, to college, and then make a proposal. And this should generally fall within the areas that the Wellcome Trust is interested in. And so this goes to the Dean of Research's inbox. And the Dean of Research at that point, John Boland, sent it around to uh, various people, including the heads of research, the directors of the research institutes, of which I am one, asked. Apologies, we just seem to be having a small technical issue with money. For ideas. So one of the conditions was that they has to be committed to it. Oh, really? I think we Manny, just lost you for a minute there, Manny. If you, want to if you want to just maybe repeat the last 10 seconds of your talk there, that'd be perfect. Thank you. I'm so sorry. I'm using the, I'm using the Trinity Wi-Fi here. So, um, so, so John Bolden received this note in his inbox and, and asked the directors of institutes of different institutes in college uh, whether they had any ideas for topics of, of, of relevance. So one of the conditions that the Wellcome Trust imposed was that um, half the funding has to come from sources within college, just to show that there's commitment from the university towards uh, this cause. So we suggest, so this was a limiting factor as well. And so one of the components of this Institute Strategic Fund Award, which you can look up on the website, by the way, to see all the components of it, was to build a program in neurohumanities. This is what I had, I came up with. And I came up with it because it's we as scientists tend to work on problems um, that we can understand um, in the language and with the rigor of our respective disciplinary practice. So if we view something incredibly complex that is not accessible right now to the technologies that we have in our hands and which cannot be described in the simple language that we use, which is highly defined, we generally consider the problem to be untractable. But, and so the neuroscientists don't often go in that direction. And the people in the humanities who, and I define humanities here in my way as being anything to do with the human experience, uh, generally consider the brain to be a mystery and the human experience is, to my mind anyway, uh, described in a rather phenomenological phenomenolo way rather than in a, in a more uh, basis on the physical activities in the brain. So, but it seemed like all of neuroscience generally builds by when the, the thing that is not tractable previously suddenly becomes tractable because of new technologies and new approaches. And so it seemed it'd be useful for neuroscience to approach the humanities. So we proposed neurohumanities as a way to go forward. 
So um, this was funded by the Wellcome Trust, but in reality, we had no idea how to deliver such a program and how to take it forward, which was one of his attractions. Here's something really important. How are we going to do it and interesting? So what we needed was a certain amount of leadership within college. And some of the leadership comes simply by position. That is Jane Olmeyer, then the director of the Long Room Hub. And I guess uh, I, for my sins, being the director of the Institute of, Institute of Neuroscience, thought this was going to be really interesting. And so we could put our offices, so to speak, behind it. But then we also need um, others on others in, the, in, in, in college who are passionate and really find this exciting and who provide intellectual energy and impetus to it. And so we have both inspiration as well as community, community serving actions where they organize events and discussions and actions on this team. And so I'm not gonna list everybody, but you know, some people like, you know, Tomas Ryan, uh, uh, Nick Johnson, Veronica O'Keen and others, you know, spent, uh, and Ian Robertson were extraordinarily interested in this space. And I'll mention some other names going forward. So we decided what we want to do is to bring people together across campus and just have several discussions. We would think, we would listen, and we would argue, and argue in the, in the Italian way, argumento, which is to actually uh, discuss in some detail, and learn uh, what each of us have to offer our different perspectives. And this sort of takes us out of our comfort zone a little bit, because what we usually use, like to do is to talk with authority about, on a certain topic. But when you go to a space where you only know a little bit, you have to go be, be talking about things you don't know so much about. And there has to be a certain level of, you know, uh, of, uh, of trust as we do so and a desire to learn and rather than fear of being wrong. So after that, we need to define what might be worth doing and how these can be done and funded um, and on what scale. And so the, 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 the Welcome Trust grant allowed us the flexibility to provide seed funding for any small proposals or actions that anyone on campus would like to, to have in this general space. Okay, so um, there hasn't been so far a lot of research in this area, but in Trinity itself, when I say research, I mean focused research. I'll come back to some examples as we go forward. And Amelia up there is, a, is an example of somebody who's actually doing a PhD in this space. It's not that there isn't any. But we did discuss a huge range of possibilities at various meetings, a couple that I remember offhand. I mean, Nick Johnson, for instance, uh, is, 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 is a professor in, 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 the, in theater. And he described, discussed, spoke at a meeting saying that one of the functions of people on stage is to, is to uh, transmit emotion to the people in the audience. And there are apparently two schools of acting, one of which says that the actor has to actually feel this emotion themselves in order to express it and transmit it most effectively to the audience. And that apparently is associated with the actors occasionally being so overcome that they, uh, that they have mental illnesses or mental issues that I have to deal with going forward. But the second approach is more in a more minimalistic way is to not necessarily feel it, but to be able to transmit it to audience by, by different sorts of gestures and actions. And so this seemed like something that was interesting. And if we had methods of neuroscience that would both uh, monitor what the, how uh, the, the emotions in individuals in the audience or in, in a test population, while there are certain artistic uh, 
styles being deployed by the actor, maybe there would be really some way in which both can communicate to each other. And how gestures generate emotions, even now is fairly complicated in terms of neuroscience, maybe there could be something there. We haven't gone forward. Another thing that there is some work on, which I find interesting is stress is a concept that is defined physiologically and biologically, and also in terms of neuroscience, there are studies of it. And, in, and if you look um, in society, there is, um, you know, there, there are a fair number of displaced individuals in the population who are not really excluded at all. And this is both nationally and internationally. And so there's work which, is, which, which, we've, which we've supported, for instance, uh, Brendan, who's in the School of Religion, worked on stress in, 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 in Palestine. And there's other work going on on, on on campus in this space as well. So what we did, however, and this has been extraordinarily successful in my view, and driven a lot by the energy from Thomas Ryan um, and various other people, is, uh, is having talks. So we had many lecturers in this who worked or taught in this area come by and give presentations. So I'll just give you a little, I'm just going to try and share my screen and find a list of these talks. You can see them again, oh help. You can see them again on, um, on the website, if you look at TCD and ISSF, you'll find it. Oops, have I got the, the right thing on? Yes or no, talk so far? Yeah, okay. So, so um, I'm just gonna skim through these. You'll see uh, James Gleek up here, who's um, uh, Dan Daniel Bassett, uh, Robert Scanlon, who's an expert on Beckett, uh, Mike Eisen, professor in Berkeley, uh, Celeste Kidd, a neuroscientist in Berkeley, Francis Fallon, who's an alum of Trinity, who's a philosopher in St. John's in New York. Um, Dave Popel from the Max Planck Institute of Empirical Aesthetics and also NYU, who's a neuroscientist. Um, and several others. And the very first one for here, Steven Pinker, who came by, <clears throat> who spoke really about his book, as it turns out. And, and, and to, to my mind, that's the worst of his books. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Daniel Smale, who was the head of the Department of History at Harvard University. So we had all these people come and speak, and <clears throat> they gave us some ideas about what this, the, what, you know, the field might look like, and much food for thought. So Daniel Smale, I'm going to mention, because I, he was the first speaker, and I found it tremendously interesting. One of the shortcomings of, of humanities, and also for that matter of human neuroscience, is that people assume that human are some kind of a superior organism and they don't actually consider the real biology of the human, which is also shared with the animal kingdom. So including animals uh, and work on animals in our understanding of, 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 of humanity, I think is really quite fundamental for anybody with a biological perspective. And it was really nice that Daniel Smale, who's a historian, uh, brought this up in the first place. So Daniel Smale's work is, is, is curious, at least the aspect of his work that he did. I, I don't know what historians do, but this is rather interesting. They had found a place and they had found some kind of a chateau. They had dug up a chateau of some sort in Italy, and it turned out it'd be part of a town. And so they could then look in all of these little houses which they had excavated in, in Italy to look at you know, what was present in the houses. And so based on, uh, you know, taking different sections of, of items that they found, which they had to stratify, he could write different sets of papers and give different sites of talks. So one of them, for instance, was on containers. 
he found all of these different types of containers. And then he realized that containers were extraordinarily important in society and in, in particular ways. So that has nothing to do with neurohumanities. But the other part that he spoke about here was debt. He found that all of these different houses appeared to have indications that so-and-so owed something to another person, somebody else owed money to a third person, somebody else owed, I don't know, owed pigs to a fourth person. And so there was this network of connectivity across society, which was based on debt. So what he hypothesized really beautifully was that loaning, loaning money or offering abilities that you have, but somebody else doesn't have, um, to, to another person in society is a fairly fundamental aspect of keeping society together. And he gave the example here of studies on vampire bats. And apparently vampire bats, well, they, they suck blood as you know, but uh, they only get a drink every once in a way. They can't really find a victim, but they need a drink of blood every three days. Otherwise they, they die or get really sick. But if they do get a bite, they actually get quite a lot. So occasionally, if one of them in a group gets a bite of suck of blood, uh, but the other does not and gets desperate after two days, it sort of looks pathetic and waves his hands around. And the other one regurgitates some blood for the one that really needs it. And it makes sense because this has much more than it has. A small amount makes a big difference to something that doesn't have and so on. So, but if one of them refuses the other, then the vampire bat that was refused remembers the individual who said no and is much more likely to refuse in future to share its uh, meal with the individual that didn't do so. So even in vampire bats, this business of loaning and gifting is part of building communities together. And in terms of policy, what he pointed out is that the banks that currently exist, we all go to banks to get loans. We don't really ask our friends or our neighbors, we don't do it that's actually destroyed to some extent aspects of society because it becomes this impersonal sort of a space and many of the controls and regulations that exist in society go away because they're not the banks don't govern it. So it's a very interesting talk, but uh, the idea here is that there's a biology and, and behind uh, altruism and behind debt that was interesting to explore. The other talk I'm just gonna mention is David Popel. Uh, David Popel is a really a fantastic neuroscientist at NYU. And there's the Max Planck Institute of Empirical Aesthetics that was founded. And so he studies, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a director there and studies among other things, language. So he spoke about something about the problem of, uh, of, of, of matching terminologies and nomenclatures and the language of neuroscience onto terminology and language that's used and terms used in linguistics. So he referred to this as mismatched granularities. That is, you can't talk about cells and synapses on the one hand, we talk about you know, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and, uh, and clauses, clauses and so on in one language. How does one map to the other? So what he pointed out was that engaging with the language itself you know, helps us understand the brain. And so one of the things he did was he played um, speech as I'm speech speaking to you now. And what's interesting is that if you listen, if you were to really uh, do a sonograph of the speeches I'm speaking to you now, you'll find that there actually is no gap between the words. The words are just going right into each other. Your brain is parsing them into words. It's not that my words are being parsed. And so this was very interesting because it, um, in itself, because it tells you how the brain is working. And also in this case, you know, it can do many things. 
um, I, there's a technology that I was quite fascinated by, um, and I connected this up with, uh, let me just find it one second. I think there are more pages open here than I intended to have. Okay, well, maybe I won't show it to you. I'll just tell you about it. Um, it's something called Spritz. And so Spritz is a company that wants that, that trains, that allows you to do speed reading. So instead, actually, let me just find it. It's quite fascinating. Excuse me. Uh, so it's, 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 it's basically a, a method for people to read much faster than, they, than you would think they would be able to. And uh, now I should surely be able to find it. While you're looking for that, Manny, I just found a Guardian article and I'll just read like an intro paragraph. Um, the idea of speed reading was invented by an American school teacher named Evelyn Wood, who searched for a way to improve the lives of troubled teenagers in Salt Lake County, Utah, by teaching them to read effortlessly led her to the belief that she herself could read at the rate of 2,700 words a minute, 10 times faster than the average educated reader, and further that the techniques that allowed her to do so could be taught and sold. So that's maybe one of the foundations of it. Yeah, so here's an example of what they do. So thank you so much for filling in while I with that background. So here is Spritz, a demo. I don't know how far it went, but this is showing you, if you can see it. Okay, so by the end, you were actually reading, you were actually reading at 500 words per minute. So, so, so the question, so, so you can actually understand, the question is whether you lose some kind of emotional content, whether you lose some of the aspects, because apparently what this does is it keeps you from having to say, articulate the words as you read them. It just goes straight into your brain bypassing some method that you might use. Okay, so that's a couple of things from there. So it's possible that something is lost. Uh, there is, uh, for instance, uh, Obama's speech in 2004 was considered to be one of the very best speeches around. And there were linguists who sort of uh, analyzed it and found that he used these various rhetorical methods that apparently there are 80 different rhetorical tools or something that are used to have impact, which somebody who is not a neuroscientist has categorized. And a very large fraction were used by Obama. But presumably some aspects of rhetoric and things would be go away if you're listening in the spritz kind of way, where there's a sequence of words coming through. So there's something going to be lost, but the interaction between words and the brain is interesting there anyway. Okay, so, um, we had some other presentations. One of them was um, an interesting connection. This was on depression and melancholia. So Mary Cosgrove, who's uh, the head of Germanic studies in Trinity, and I guess there's lots of melancholic literature there. And um, Veronica O'Keene, who's a psychiatrist who sees patients who's depressed. Uh, they had a very, and they also got somebody who uh, really suffered from extreme depression as an actress who performed uh, herself as depressed. Um, they had a, a very powerful presentation, very powerful sort of presentation where, um, you know, they, where they sort of communicated the, how it would feel to be depressed through art, literature, acting, and with clinical insight as well into, in, in, into the depressed mind. So this brings me to sort of another issue, which is that, um, you know, introspection and language can tell us something about how the brain works. But this is really at a stage which is often uh, way before the neuroscientist gets in. But I find this sort of, there are some examples of this. So for instance, neuroscientists talk about emotion, but uh, as 
you know, you want to be highly reductionist as possible, you often think of emotion as being positive or negative. But there are, in fact, a whole range of emotions. And if you look at uh, Greek mythology or the Indian mythology, and here's a little thing from Indian mythology I'll just show you for fun. This is a guy who just, I just found this slide. I don't take it seriously. Uh, Indian aesthetics, they say there's eight essences and they've added a couple more, but look at this, disgust, humor, fury, love, compassion, horror, wonder. Look, this is a pretty interesting one. Solicitude of a senior to a junior. So there are all of these different sets of emotions that actually exist. And so you can't actually define something as being positive or negative. So the, and interestingly, I think uh, my colleague Tamara Bodo, who's uh, on the faculty in physiology is here. And so some of her work has shown that there are these different classes of dopaminergic neurons and each different class of dopaminergic neuron confers a different type of emotion. It's not just reward and it's not just punishment. Different types of reward and different types of punishment are flavors are encoded in there. So some of these words really map on the more advanced things in neuroscience. Okay, so we also, um, Tom Carew, who, uh, retired, who has just stepped down as Dean of Arts and Sciences in NYU, came here on a sabbatical in Trinity. And so Tom and I got to talking and then we decided we would, that this was a really interesting area and we try and highlight this globally. And so we uh, got a set of people to, together to write small authoritative articles. And there's a journal called Neuron, which is shown here, which is one of the better journals in neuroscience. And we convinced them to have a special issue on, on the neurohumanities. This is a cover that was uh, drawn by an artist. This is like, this was one of the essays is on art and the brain. And so um, in this process, we had a few other ideas that came out. Uh, one of the, we had a couple of the authors included uh, Claire Kelly, who's our, uh, the secretary of Trinity Fellows and uh, Redmond O'Connell, who's a neuroscientist here. And they talked about uh, morality, whether neuroscience can tell us something about human morality. So again, the traditional, not the traditional, the edge of neuroscience, not the edge, but the most of the neuroscience right now looking at decision-making talks about quick and fast decisions because those are the easiest things that we can analyze in the lab. But slower decisions that one makes are not made really fast. So for instance, if you decide to cross the road when a car is coming or not, you make a very quick decision. But if you're trying to decide whether you want to you know, write a thesis in the neurohumanities or in just straight poetry, it takes much longer. So any of the question is whether moral decision-making involves a different circuits altogether or different kinds of inputs onto the current circuit. But there is a neuroscience there, which was interesting, which Claire and Redmond had talked about. And um, I myself uh, wrote something with Tom Carew, but just to say, we, we did actually sort of, um, you know, write something simple on what we thought would be meaningful research in neurohumanities, what would be meaningful, not just, you know, uh, speculation, but actually what constitutes real progress. And you can read it if you want, it's available free online. But one of the things we talked about, which I was quite consumed by for some time, is the feeling of identity. Uh, the culture wars these days are extraordinarily strong. I think Facebook and things contributes a lot because they either have like or not like, there's no sort of shades of gray. You're either part of one group or another group. So the question is, what is this? Where does one sense of identity come from? And so I don't claim to know the answer, but the but the concept here is that what we don't learn only from our own experiences, 
we actually learn a lot from the experience of others that we interact with. We learn through narrative, we learn from textbooks, we learn from um, you know, essentially all the inputs from our immediate culture. So we may not learn as much from you know, cultures and inputs that we don't encounter. And so all of those different forms of learning that we get eventually describe, you know, form our sense of identity. So in general, a lot more learning happens and our sense of identity sort of and perspective allows us to predict the future uh, comes when we are younger and Jean Piaget and others have talked about this quite a lot, but we lose this flexibility as we get older. So the question is, you know, how are these so-called, um, how does this flexibility go away? How can it come again? I would like to think that as academics and as thinkers and especially as scientists, we retain some of this flexibility uh, going forward. We're able to think of new ideas. We're able to consider new possibilities. And so some of that we discuss in this, uh, in this, in, in, in this article in terms of neuroscience. I'm particularly keen myself on the idea that there are, that by disinhibition, that we tend to think efficiently in one way, but by disinhibition, we can start to think less efficiently, but more creatively and discover new things. And so a lot of this disinhibition can happen in more safe types of environments. And so I think there's ways in which, and I know that uh, Andrea Bandelli, who, was, who is, was the director of the Science Gallery, said he had worked for some time on trying to find out particular strategies for discourse, which allow people to learn and appreciate other people's points of view versus other strategies of discourse that do not. And I think there's a neuroscience that's accessible here. Yadin Dudai wrote a very nice article on cultural memory. He's a very distinguished neuroscientist and uh, you know, one of the uh, you know, uh, rare people who really understand many, many different fields. There's a word that's, uh, I'm just losing briefly. Um, so, um, but so he suggested that conformism may be something that would be interesting to think of as well. Why do we feel the tendency to conform to what's around us? And there's probably, you know, a neuroscience there as well. Okay, so I will tell you a few ideas that, we've, that I've personally been thinking about. Um, again, these are extraordinarily raw ideas and I don't for a moment claim that they even have legs, okay? And they have not been solved by others. Carmel Raz was invited by Jane Olmeyer to come uh, from Colombia to give a talk. Carmel Raz works on music and she gave a talk about a guy named uh, Hector, Hector Berlioz. Hector Berlioz, uh, I think is the 17th century or something. He was a doctor, but really wanted to be a musician. And he classified various different music, sets of uh, musical pieces as being things that make you happy, things that make you sad, things that make you want to dance, things that make you reflective and so on. And so, he, so music does have this ability um, to have these effects. Um, so uh, I, I, as a, so this was quite fascinating because why do certain patterns generate of, of sound generate emotions? So as a biologist, I know that uh, animals have uh, calls. There are alarm calls, there are mating calls, there are um, you know, calls saying I want food, there's calls saying I'm coming. So there are many different kinds of calls that birds make. And some of these calls such as alarm calls uh, work across species. If you, hear a, you know, if you hear an animal in pain, you know it's in pain. It works across species. So there's some kinds of patterns of sound that generate emotion. And so there is a biology there that we don't actually understand. And so that seemed to be interesting. And there's work from Peter Marlow, who's one of the great uh, bird biologists who passed away some years ago, 
But Peter Mahler has written a book on all of these different kinds of bird songs and bird calls and their emotions, but there hasn't been a neuroscience there. There's somebody named Manfred Klein who passed away a while ago and I don't know his work, but he was supposed to have be able to create artificial music based on patterns that would create emotions in people. But again, I haven't read his work, but it seemed like an interesting space to be exploring. Um, another thought that occurred uh, to, to me, when I say me, it means uh, collective knowledge talking to me and my friends and colleagues around here, is, uh, is to do with mental health. And over the past year and a half or two, when especially younger people away from their parents have been sort of locked up in rooms, this is an issue that's around, is uh, we, there's a big gap, I think, in, in, in mental health is viewed as being, if you have really serious problems, okay, you go see a psychiatrist, uh, but until then, you know, you kind of deal with it. And there isn't really a space for, for feeling, I don't feel so good. Is that a mental health problem or is that I just don't feel so good? But it seemed like, you know, if you have a narrative, so also if someone comes, let's say I was a psychiatrist, which I'm not, uh, but somebody comes to talk to me and I give you a solution, it's possible that with a lot of experience that I would have, I would be able to actually relate to your specific life experience. But I would suggest that if you had suffered depression and you were making it out, and there's somebody your age who came from your background who had suffered depression and had come out of it, and they talked to you about it, that you might actually get much more out of that conversation, I'm just suggesting it. But it seemed possible that one could then collect narratives from lots of young people who had come out of depression, for instance, if they were willing to give it, and then stratify these individuals based on you know, different kinds of people that they were even stratified based on psychology, socioeconomic backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. And then make these available for others to actually interact with online. And maybe something like this would be actually a useful resource, which would not be in the, which is certainly not something to do if you're feeling suicidal or if you're feeling really ill, but it's something if you're not feeling so good, you might find some perspectives from others that you could share and would be a sort of communal learning. Another thought was a dream bank. This is not original, by the way, dream banks do exist. There was a professor in Santa Cruz whose name was retired, whose name eludes me, who uh, has, I think, dream banks for many, many, many years of college students. So the idea is that, uh, I sort of like the idea that one of the, re one of the mechanisms of dreaming is disinhibition, where many different thoughts, many different things, experiences come up in your mind, and then we try to connect them up in some logical way, and, and often it's very bizarre. But uh, there's fairly good evidence that the content of your dreams reflects to some extent, you know, uh, your state of mind as well as events in your life. But it seemed like, you know, with linguistic or content analysis of dreams, it would be possible, for instance, to infer uh, mental health and states of minds. And it seemed like, you know, a project like that would be fairly interesting, especially if it had a neuroscience component where you're trying to, and I think we're getting close to being able to do some level of mind reading is to actually see whether particular recalls that people are saying I have report can also be uh, measured by brain imaging. And so you can even help people recall their dreams by saying, I think this was in your dream, you know. Seems like there's some space there. So there are many ideas and I'm just one, one, one person who is over busy working at Drosophila with fruit fly genetics, 
who is trying to tell you some ideas that um, you know he's had insomniac moments. But there are so many ideas that one could come up with, and you could come up with as well. So the question is, if we, if these ideas are good, why do I not work on this? I mean, what's keeping me? If you, if you think it's so good, tell us to do new humanities. Why don't you do it for God's sake? So um, the the answer is very complex, and I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. But really, my expert, I don't have the expertise myself at this point in time to instruct and uh, students, PhD students or postdoctoral fellows, on how to analyze this. I don't have the funding to pay their salaries. And, uh, you know, frankly, there's lots of other things that I also do really quite well, and I have responsibilities, etc. So it is it, difficult to find the time when you're already a practicing full academic with an overfull life to just go off in a new direction. Um, but there are people who, who do. Amelia, for instance, is a, I mean, I don't want to speak for Amelia, but, for my, but, but you know, she's, she's, she's a PhD student with real interest. She doesn't carry a lot of baggage. And she's actually generated uh, and is interacting with people in neuroscience and with people in poetry to drive us to drive something forward. And, and you know that's the way in which new things happen. If you look in science as well, from my perspective, um, a lot of the really new things and risky things don't come from uh, you know from professors' minds. Often sitting like me, it's usually young people who get their own funding, who then say, "I can come to your lab or your group and work on this," and you say, "Sure." And so you provide an intellectual sounding board and some of the resources required, but the ideas come from young self-funded people going forward. And so, um, you know, I would say that in terms of how to proceed, the field right now is so, um, the, the, the interdisciplinary space is so, is not yet sufficiently occupied for even someone, you know, who thinks about it like me to know what has been done with a dream bank, okay? I don't actually have the time to even really look into it so much and how could it possibly be used? But I think that if we had, for instance, a, a master's in the neurohumanities, masters are very nice places. I feel that there are spaces for people who have done reasonably well as undergraduates to come and scope out areas that might be interesting and, you know, uh, multiple areas, but they don't have the pressure of a PhD where you have to write a thesis. It could really be exploration. So I personally think that a master's in the neurohumanities, which would be a collaboration, really should be based, I feel, in the humanities, but with, with, this, but with science involved would be one very way, good way of doing it. And these could be where you could have, for instance, collaborations across the world where, you know, I, I mean, for instance, Tomas, uh, Tomas Ryan, Lorena Nachi, and Kevin Mitchell are collaborating with Francis Fallon, who's a philosopher in, um, in, um, in St. John's in, in New York. And they're trying to work on some concept of representations in different fields of the humanities and, uh, and see whether these, how these correspond to the concept of representations in neuroscience. So I feel that you know, there has to be some creative way in which to do this. My belief based on Amelia and Fiona and all of you uh, uh, coming together for, for these discussion meetings on the neurohumanities is that there's sufficient actual interest on the ground among young people for such interdisciplinary space. But I think there has to be a certain amount of, I wouldn't call it pressure, but there has to be a certain amount of uh, noise from, the, from, 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 from younger folks saying, we would like an actual space for this. And if it happened, then we would love to do a master's in this area. I mean, I think, you know, the Irish research, I think that lots of new ideas of value could come out from here. 
and you know we can discuss it later. I'm not going to, I feel like I've talked too much already. I don't want to discuss the tension between hard and soft sciences, and we can discuss more uh, in the next, if we, in, in the Q&A. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Manny, um, for, for such an excellent um, whistle-stop tour about all the different areas um, of neurohumanities in Trinity at the moment. And um, it's an immensely exciting picture. Um, I would encourage everybody to post your questions or your comments in the Q&A function at the moment. Um, so we'll we'll kind of feed these questions through um, as they come in um, to you, Manny. But I suppose maybe I might start off with one question myself that that um, struck me as uh, as I was listening to your, your talk about. Um, I suppose it, it, within the, the context of Trinity specifically, do you think there's a particular area of neurohumanities at the moment that Trinity is most strong in, or that there's most researchers um, sort of coalescing around? Um, because it just struck me that the sheer range of things you described there, all of these different overlaps with art, ethics, morals, philosophy, all of these different areas, where do you see the most potential at the moment? So I think to define what strengths means, I mean, I think that, I, I think there's no, I, I don't think there's, a, I don't think there's a single individual, I mean, and people can say if I'm wrong, uh, I don't think there's a single individual who can say I'm a neurohumanities researcher. But I think that the tools are there across campus to be harnessed for this purpose. I mean, I think that we have really, in, in, in the Institute of Neuroscience, really outstanding human neuroscientists and psychologists. I think there are tools of artificial intelligence and signal processing that can be used. And I believe that we have extremely good people in, in, in theater. We have extremely good people in, in English. We have extremely good people in history and sociology. And I just feel that they that the tools are here. And so when you say, where is the strength? I think the strength will come from the minute you have a couple of students or postdocs who say, we will work together, then that area becomes a strength. Right now, in my view, um, there, there is, you should tell me, but who is a certain, who is a researcher committed to interdisciplinary humanities as, uh, you know, right now, I think, as you, I don't know who else is. So I think there are, I think there's a lot going here. And um, I would personally like it very much if, if, and I don't know if this is gonna be possible, if in the next round of, I mean, if there were PhD studentships that would be only in the neurohumanities or five PhD studentships in the neurohumanities, or if there were a master's program that we decided would give us enough tuition money or something, uh, to really make it financially worthwhile. And we floated a master's program in neurohumanities for 10 students. Um, and we allowed them to actually define what they were interested in as part of the application process. And we also had to identify advisors for them as part of the application process. So if we had people who looked like they were motivated, had something interesting, and there were a couple of advisors who were willing to give them input, then there would be something happening. I think we're still at the construction phase uh, but that's what it would take in my opinion. That's one way in which one could get it off the ground. The other thing is we have people abroad who also realize that neurohumanities is a space and Trinity to some extent by what we've done so far is I believe among the leaders in the area. So there are very good people who are abroad who are also willing to serve as potential advisors on collaborative projects. We could also draw them in. Absolutely. Um, and I just want to respond to a few things you said, Manny, um, because I think it's really important. You were talking about masters 
in the neurohumanities being a really nice launching point, saying that it had to be under a humanities department with uh, drawing with a lot of like drawing in a lot of science. Um, and I think I think that that really, really relates to something that Lisa Feldman Barrett talks about when she talks about emotional granularity, which then also relates to what you were talking about, mismatched granularities and this whole concept of having a really tricky time merging two disciplines with very different terminology, different backgrounds, different constructions around words. And I think it's so important to foster those connections and do that work so that, and basically just to, sorry, I, I get really excited and then I try to say five things at once but when Lisa Feldman Barrett talks about emotional granularity she talks about the necessity to be as specific as possible when it comes to interoceptive feelings um, and sensations in the body that are then constructed as cases of emotion basically and so when you're talking about creating these neurohumanities PhDs or masters I think it really comes with that little bit of extra energy as well where you need to make sure that everyone is working together in those safe environments um, to be on the same page and to really facilitate that shared understanding and learning. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, does. It, it, yeah. it, it does. I mean, I would say that if there are two people who are both, if there are multiple people focused on the success of one student, then there's a lot of motivation to get the vocabulary consistent. Um, and I, I, I think student joint students really are a major binding force. If it's, if it's, if it's, you know, if, if Philip Coleman and I meet in the corridor and we try to communicate with each other, we'll be civil for about, you know, half an hour and then we'll go our own ways. It's different if there's a student there, you know, bringing us together on a daily basis. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I'll just come to Eileen Grickook's question. Um, she says, bots are now being programmed to offer coaching, counseling, and similar types of interactions to help people with their thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Is there any study into this kind of human AI interaction? Sorry. Um, so this is the bots giving you uh, bots giving you insight into your own feelings. Mm. Yeah, I guess um, I don't. I'm not an. I'm. I don't claim to be an expert in this. But I, if if I did, if I had any issues, I would not feel inclined to consult a bot at this point. Um, so I, I don't. I don't actually. I mean, I'm sure that at some that there could be that there could be some use for this. But um, I'm. I, I don't know. The last time I looked which was quite a few years ago, it was really quite useless. It's very subjective. <laughs> we have um, Fiona Sullivan yeah. saying as well, do you think these interests are presently met with encouragement? I'm guessing interdisciplinary interests are presently met with encouragement, i.e. funding from actual Trinity faculty. So, I mean, I think that, um, I think that Trinity, Trinity faculty in their defense don't really have funding to offer. So for instance, I mean, I have a research, I have my research grants, which are meant to study certain sets of problems and which pay my, you know, technicians, PhD students, et cetera, and my group, but you know, they're not in the space of neurohumanities. And if I were to write this, right. So I think there isn't enough funding. I think it's receiving encouragement in the sense that if you actually have talks, if you have discussion meetings, lots of people show up. So there's a lot of interest in there. I think we need a mechanism that can actually fund people together. Also, Trinity faculty do work, work a lot. I mean, the amount of teaching that we have to do, the amount of supervision we have to do, the amount of work we have to do is there's a lot going on. 
So there has to be, I feel, um, first um, outside, I mean, it's easy for us to be as the converted to think this is the only perspective that exists. Neurohumanity is so fantastic. How can you possibly not have, uh, you know, um, an interdisciplinary master's in this program? But there has to be a way to convince, uh, you know, people looking from the outside that uh, there is a value in, 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 in creating a structure for this and also see where the resources can be diverted or come from to support it. I think Trinity does a lot, so it's probably, uh, yeah. I, I do think that students, if they really showed that they were super interested in it, um, they, they could be a real, that would be most convincing because faculty tend to argue very uh, evocatively for whatever they are interested in. Students actually say what they really want and universities serve students. So I think the, a lot of energy coming to the students would really be very useful here. I think so, absolutely, Manny. Um, we have a question from Professor Ian Robertson um, and Professor Robertson asks, uh, is a postmodernist approach common in certain parts of the humanities at all compatible with a scientific approach? Could the humanities benefit from the more logical positivist approach that underpins scientific inquiry? So I absolutely, so I'm not gonna comment on the postmodernist approach of the humanities because I only understand that dimly, but I can certainly say for sure that the more rigorous, uh, approach from the of science can hugely help uh, can can hugely help and assist in the humanities so and I, you know I, I, I I'm just give you one example which I am currently um, fairly um, I'm referring to the humanities extraordinarily broadly I mean I think for instance I mean I've been thinking about the culture wars quite a lot are they, right now things have calmed down so it's not so bad but I think that um, I think that if you look, for instance, at, um, let's say, just Democrats and Republicans, since they made such a lot of noise in America over the last year and a half, they're the easiest people to point at. I think that um, if one were to, uh, actually, I'm, 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 maybe I should step back here. I wish Ian was talking because, and I could hear his voice because then we could actually have a discussion. So what's the most rigorous way in which, uh, what's the most rigorous kind of science? Um, okay, let's just say something really quantitative. So I believe, okay, this is a hypothesis, it's not proven, but I believe that um, there are within the people who vote Republican, 20 different subgroups at least, and the people who vote Democratic, there's about 20 different subgroups. And I believe that, um, each of these that they, across groups, people actually have much more similarities between than they would within each group even sometimes. So the question is, can you quantitatively stratify one set of people versus another set of people and actually find that if you were to split them all into groups, you would find different overlapping subgroups, which would basically break up to my mind, two factions into a much more complex kind of a space where people are, which is more difficult to comprehend, but is more reflecting reality. The other thing I feel is that if we were to look into our independent senses of identity, and we realize that the mechanisms and the inputs that are used to create our sense of identity is exactly the same for you, Amelia, and for me, money, then we realize that actually um, then if we were to change some of these inputs coming in, we could actually morph our sense of identities into much more overlapping types of spaces. 
So I think that there is a neuroscience that could be there um, that if was were applied could really influence um, the ways in which interactions across groups should be at least designed formally in, in situations where you know such formal instructions is feasible. But uh, I should really have a beer with Ian to discuss this. <laughs> Uh, well, what about, you know, we actually have a comment coming in from um, Hannah's Opels, um, and just on, on the back of what you just said there, Manny, and particularly um, in, in linking in with your advocacy of this, this potential near humanities masters, but um, so uh, Dr. Opel says, uh, this is less a question than an opportunity for me to say that as director of Trinity's MPhil in Identities and Cultures of Europe, we are or would be extremely interested in integrating a neurohumanities element to the programme. We cover, for instance, French philosopher Malibu's work on plasticity and epigenetic, epigenetics and neurobiology in our core module. Um, and I know Malibu was, was here um, for a seminar uh, earlier this year, but would be interested in developing this aspect of our course significantly. Thanks for a fascinating talk. I'll be getting in touch. So there we go. And already an opportunity arising off Sounds the back good. of this conversation. Sounds great. Make sure you copy Amelia as well. Okay. Absolutely. And we have one last um, question from Stella. Um, she writes, I wonder if interdisciplinary neurohumanity PhD research can happen in one person. I am a counselor interested in emotional well-being. I was from a science background and now in the School of Education. Um, is the difficulty where to find some sort of neuroscience measurement or is having the mindset what is important? I think that it's possible for neurohumanities work to happen in one, in one mind and one brain for sure. Um, I just think it takes a little bit of time because if you want to know uh, more than a certain discipline, you sort of have to have a little bit of, I think it probably take anyone going into a new space a couple of years to learn the, to, 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 a couple of years of time in order to be able to feel you have all of the tools and all of the thoughts in your own mind to, to address it. So I think funding for two years of peace where you can, where you can get this is really, is, I think would be required. Brilliant. Thank you so much. If anyone has any other questions, we have three minutes left, but I think this has been a very successful, we've covered so much ground. You've covered so much ground. <laughs> Many, I feel like people will be thinking about this and coming up with questions far <laughs> after the workshop. Awesome. Um, and just I know I know somebody was asking, um, I think, in the chat as well about that edition of Neuron. And there, I've just sent a, a, a link into the chat there if anybody's interested in following up. I think, as Manny said, it is available online. Um, and I know it is a, it's an excellent edition of Neuron. So I'd, I'd encourage everyone. I'd be to glad to send PDFs to people if they're interested to send me an email. Yeah, absolutely. Um, OK, wonderful. So I think unless we have um, any other questions that are just going to come in at the last minute, we'd just like to thank you, uh, Manny, so much for joining us and for facilitating such an interesting uh, conversation that I think took turns that uh, even I wasn't expecting in terms of the wideness of how, how much neurohumanities can cover. Um, and thank you so much to our attendees for uh, your wonderful questions and your participation. Um, and again, just to the Long Room Hub for hosting us. Thank uh, you guys so much. And Fiona and Amelia, you guys are actually leading this, uh, leading this whole um, networking uh, event here. I think you should continue it over the fall. And if you really get lots of students and lots of people on the ground super interested, that's that's the way in which it'll be successful, not from people like uh, from me. So <laughs> wonderful, thanks, Manny. Oh, and just a just a reminder that our next two events they're ha both happening on Thursday next week and the Thursday the following Thursday. Um, so next week 
Fiona has um, a wonderful workshop on, like she said, on fluidity of fascia. So she's going to give a lecture and an active workshop. And then the week after, we're going to have an interdisciplinary panel discussing more challenges of neurohumanities with a couple of different um, amazing researchers and professors. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.